Welcome to the Healthcare Success Podcast. I'm Kyle Hojan. On today's show, we will air a panel session recorded live at i for pharma in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on April 17th, 2019. The topic, patient-centric care, does the doctor know best? Panel members are Stuart Gandalf of Healthcare Success and ARIA Agency, Fasia Hack of Eli Lilly & Company, Sven Gerlinger of Northwell Health, Mia Nice, formerly of Aravale, and moderating the panel is Lynn Nye of Medical Minds. Now, let's go to the panel, patient-centric care, does the doctor know best? I'm Lynn Nye from uh, uh, Medical Minds. We're a medical communications company, and we specialize in physician and patient education. So that's why we're really interested in this really important topic of patient-centric care. And um, today we have a really wonderful panel of uh, speakers with a wealth of information. Um, And actually, um, Stuart and I talked with them all prior to this um, event. And I have to tell you, they all talk a lot and have a lot of things to say. We're not shy. So so actually what we did was we uh, recorded the conversations and we've made them into podcasts. Um, So once they approve them, they'll be available. So if anybody wants to get more information from them, um, you just have to bring your business card to me um, and uh, we'll um, email you some links to the presentations. Anyway, to start off, um, they could introduce themselves much better than me. So they're going to, I'm going to ask each panel member to um, introduce themselves and tell tell us um, the great work that they do. So um, let's do it in order then. Um, uh, Mia, seeing as you're the first picture here, let's hear from you first. Yeah, thank you so much, Lynn, and thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, present to you today. So um, my name is Mia Nice. I uh, head up commercial for Aravale. That basically translates into uh, looking after healthcare life sciences partnerships. Um, Aravale is a company that's spun out of Dr. Lee Hood's Institute, and those of you who have got a genetics background will no doubt recognize Dr. Lee Hood's name. His uh, contribution to science and to, to medicine is across a... 60-year career has been absolutely outstanding. So um, our company is focused on optimizing wellness and avoiding disease, as well as producing some really great science from the de-identified data that we generate. So why should you care about this? Well, if you're on the commercial side or the Metaphase side, um, Aravel is really an interesting platform to conduct um, real-world evidence and late-stage trials. And if you're on the patient side, um, you'll see that Aravel produces some really, really outstanding clinical results. So um, that's, uh, I'm looking forward to, to talking more about kind of patient centricity and, and what we're doing for our patients. Thank you. And uh, uh, Fasia. Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you, Lynn, for inviting me to this panel. Great uh, pleasure to work with you all. Uh, my name is Fasia Hack, and I'm responsible for uh, global medical education at Eli Lilly. And my role, really, as I see it, is to bring the patient voice into everything that we do. So it's always keeping us real internally in pharma, not drinking too much of our own Kool-Aid, and ensuring that um, all of the outcomes that we are gearing all of our medical affairs activities towards are really focused on what matters at the end of the day, which is improving patient outcomes. Okay. Thank you, Fasia. And now Sven, let's hear. Good morning. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, I'm Sven Gillinger. I'm the Chief Experience Officer at Northwell Health. 
So Northwell Health uh, was previously known as uh, uh, North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System, and we are now the uh, largest um, uh, provider of uh, medical services, uh, integrated delivery network um, in the state of New York. Uh, we operate uh, uh, with our affiliates 23 hospitals, but we've grown tremendously also on the ambulatory side with 700 physician practices and then all the other elements that are part of the uh, continuum, uh, continuum of care. And in my role, um, I basically um, am responsible to make sure that we are the most patient-centric, the most uh, customer service-focused, uh, the, the, the organization that uh, we can be and to work with all the different entities and to make sure that we, that we achieve that. Thank you. And Stuart. Hi, I'm Stuart Gandalf, and I also am likewise very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, what's exciting to me about having talked to everybody on the panel before, uh, the diversity of viewpoints we're bringing to this discussion today. I'm CEO of a company called Healthcare Success, as well as a new agency we just farm, or founded a couple of days ago, uh, Aria Agency, which is the pharmaceutical side. I feel like we have a double life. We're straddling both worlds of pharma and provider. And the, um, what's exciting to me is that the, um, you know, we, we do a lot of speaking, a lot of writing within our agency work, and we talk about there's really six ways to build a provider, for example, where it's doctor referral building, digital, PR, uh, branding, uh, external advertising, and mostly patient experience. And people forget that patient experience is really a vital part of everything. And it's really kind of uh, one of my passions that we get to see every day that we can impact. So I'm very honored to be here because it's something I'm, I'm passionate about. So thank you. Yeah, so you see we have um, a diversity of opinion and multiple uh, perspectives, and which is really important for this discussion because uh, patient-centric care is also a very multifactorial um, situation. So anyway, this is a really exciting time for us, as we all know, as we transition, um, and we've been hearing about it to, um, yesterday, <clears throat> and I'm sure we will again today, from a sick care system to um, a personalized wellness and preventative care healthcare system. And in speaking with the panel um, prior to our uh, event here, it's very interesting because they were all in sync with this idea of acceleration. That's the word that came up in our um, conversations. How can we accelerate this change? And um, the, the, um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to um, try to answer that question, first of all, by defining um, the gap um, um, between um, a physician and patient communication. And then we are going to talk about some successful initiatives. And there are a lot of successful initiatives in this panel here, actually, that you're going to hear a little bit about. Um, and then um, we're going to talk about um, a ways in which we can engage uh, multiple players to um, develop real-world scalable strategies that will really begin to um, accelerate the change. So um, I'm going to stop talking now and <laughs> ask the first question. And the first question is for um, Fasia. So in your research, Fasia, what have you learned about how um, patients want to receive information from their physicians? Thanks, Lynn. Sure. So after a typical uh, consultation, if you were to ask physicians and patients um, what was communicated and actually what was understood, you would find a discordance in their responses. 
And as you can see on this slide, you know, a physician may feel that they've actually asked uh, a patient or discussed with them the approaches um, to achieve their goals. But in fact, only approximately 75% of patients would actually agree with that. Often the top concerns from a patient perspective are actually the bottom at, at the bottom of a, of a physician's list uh, of concerns. And that's because physicians tend to focus on long-term outcomes and the disease aspects of care. Patients, on the other hand, are dealing with holistic aspects, you know, more than just one life domain. And they're focused on more of the day-to-day, short-term quality of life issues. And I don't know if you've heard this study. It's called Soliciting the Patient's Agenda. It's a little bit old, but it's been replicated, and the numbers ring quite true. So what this study actually reports is that patients are interrupted after a mean time of 18 seconds when asked to describe their concerns. And only in one in 52 visits can the patient actually return to their original concern. What's even more alarming is that as of 2018, so just last year, in two studies conducted in the US and Canada, that mean time has dropped to 11 seconds. So the crux of the discordance actually stems from a perceived lack of time and also having conversations with every patient in, in the very same way. And there's many areas I find uh, in, in which physicians and patients both don't formally set mutual expectations, and they're not even aware of the misalignment in their understanding most of the time. And one of these areas, quite simply, is the volume and depth of information that a patient prefers and how active they want to be in decision-making. So if physicians were to ask a simple questions of patients around this topic, Physicians typically say one of three things. They'll say, you're the expert doctor, just tell me what to do. Or, tell me, um, sorry, or please make a recommendation and give me the key reasons why. Or, I wanna know everything, and let's make the decision together. So often by asking questions upfront, you can not only build rapport, build trust and empathy, but you can address the patient's um, uh, or you can understand better the patient's motivations, concerns. And that actually does show that it, it, you know, it aligns up very well with improving both adherence and outcomes in the long term. And it saves time. <laughs> yes, thank you, Vasia. That's um, very insightful and very important work. So um, uh, Sven, next. Um, so Sven at Northwell Health has developed um, an amazing system, a comprehensive training initiative. Um, and so tell us how that has impacted the way that physicians um, uh, speak to their patients. And I have a slide here, I think, on. Yeah, yes. So um, I've been there five years, and about a year after I started, I asked the question, you know, how can we... Um, create a more um, standard of standard of care for physicians and with patients in terms of a communication and that focuses on the experience um, of, of a patient and we developed a program that we call our relationships and a communication program that um, our physicians have created in partnership with an organization called the the Academy for Communication and Healthcare um, and we partnered also with a, a medical school um, to infuse what we're teaching our medical students there, uh, which I didn't mention earlier that we, that we have, and to create a curriculum that, that is based on a three-function approach, and that 
um, breaks down that encounter, whether it's a five-minute encounter or a 20-minute encounter into, into three areas, and uh, that um, includes um, what we call the empathy micro-skills um, to make sure that we actually um, um, communicate uh, with, uh, with empathy with, with the patients. And to me, it's, we talk a lot about uh, uh, patient-centered care. We used to talk about that it was provider-centric, and so as the pendulum was provider-centric, then it swung over to patient-centric, and we believe that it's, it's now pendling out somewhere in the middle, that it is the, the relationship-centered, that it's collaboration, that we, that we work together. And so far, we've, um, uh, the number there says 919 doctors. We are actually, next week on Friday, we're, we're gonna have 1,000 doctors that have gone through it, and they, they spend an entire day with role play and with um, um, really uh, uh, learning new skills um, and sometimes it's physicians that have been practicing for 20 years, 30 years, and they feel like they have great communication skills, and they go into it a little reluctantly at first, but then um, they walk out, um, and we have many, many testimonials where some of these long-term physicians have said, um, it's amazing that I feel now that um, I've been practicing medicine for 20 years and I've practiced it the wrong way. And now I, I feel like I, I have better relationships with the, with the doctors, uh, with, the, with the patients. That's great. So Fasir has to send all our rheumatology patients to Northwell Health, right? <laughs> and, and we talk about the, the, the interruption, for example, that the patient gets interrupted right away. But if you let them talk, then it, it's only uh, twice as long, actually. And um, other um, strategies that the that doctor can em employ to, to make sure that the patient feels heard. Yes, great. Oh, and actually, we have one more slide here. Um, just quickly, that shows Yeah, that's just uh, the impact of how our communication with doctors have uh, improved over the years, and that's the, that's the HCAPS uh, uh, domain, and it's uh, really been um, remarkable. And the, the other impact that it's having is that physicians are leaders, obviously, and it um, sets the tone for the organization. It makes the, the nurses focus on that more. It makes everybody else focus on that more, because what I've seen in the past is um, the question is always, what about the physicians? You know, you make us do that, but what about the physicians? And this is, this is it's a great story. Yeah. Thank you. So we come to Stuart. So Stuart talks to physicians in private practice and institutions um, every day. So uh, tell us, Stuart, what do they tell you? Yeah, so it's really funny, and to build on what Sven just mentioned as well, how the doctors are at the center of this universe and the provider level, the hospital level. Um, and I think it's so compelling that you have uh, respected doctors from within your organization leading these uh, educational classes because it, that way it has inherent credibility. Mm -hmm. Without the credibility of the doctors, it just if you come in as some consultant who's not clinical, they'll sort of half believe you. What I've seen is a couple of, I don't know, five years ago, I was, had the honor to be invited to speak at Cleveland Clinic's Patient Experience Summer Summit. And um, over the last five years, what I have seen the transformation is fantastic. Uh, there I met Dr. Jim Merlino, who's a mutual friend of Sven, Sven's and mine. And Jim is kind of at the forefront of this whole uh, world. He's even now, he's now with Press Ganey. He used to be the chief patient experience officer there. He's now with Press Ganey. Um, and he's even impacting some pharmaceutical now. But I, I think it's really fun. As I got in the know, Jim, and now we're you know, uh, more than colleagues, I think we're real good friends at this stage. But we talk about how at the beginning of this journey, uh, doctors would, um, and I'm talking five, six years ago even, 
you know, I don't care if I get them, uh, make them happy. I just want them to get better. And it was kind of a very self-centric viewpoint. Um, and I remember patient experience right about that same time, uh, my mother fell and broke her hip, uh, classic story of course, and they lined her up at the hospital on a gurney so that it was convenient for the radiology department. So she's sitting out in the cold um, because it was convenient. It was not patient-centric, it was operational-centric. So this has been a true revolution on the provider side over the last five years. And it's very, very exciting what we're seeing. And all of a sudden, this is a topic. And now here, we're at a pharma conference where I told you about my double life, where patient centricity is here. And I think it's, um, I'm pleasantly excited to see how much of the agenda this meeting is talking about these issues, how focused people, it's not lip service, it's for real. However, I gotta say that there are still you know, objections out there. I talked to somebody last week who shocked me. And um, essentially, she's a doctor, and her position was, well, patients aren't qualified to make any decisions, and just leave it up to the experts. <laughs> and so this isn't what we're talking about at all today. So there are still remnants out there. Remember the whole innovator, early adopter curve, late majority of laggards? I would call her in the laggards. But I feel that's really exciting, and some of the things we talked about on our various conference calls is how can we work together to you know, cross these boundaries between pharma, between private practice, between hospitals, and work together, because at the end of the day, if it's truly patient-centric, um, we have to consider from all these different angles. That's right, Stuart, absolutely right. Actually, that's always the case, isn't it, when you have different perspectives and you collaborate together that the outcome is so much better than you can do from one person at a time. Okay, so Mia um, is, um, has a very exciting uh, um, company that she works for and a very exciting background. So um, in your work at Arivale, um, Mia, um, what have you learned about the physician-patient communication? And I know you work with lots of different specialties, so does it, does it vary? Um, uh, by specialty? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, a lot of people that come into the Aravel program are quote-unquote healthy, right? So they come in as healthy participants who are either the worried well or the health optimizers or um, health hopefuls. In, in some cases, there are also people who are struggling with chronic disease and are not getting quite the support they need from the medical community. And so, um, you know, our, the average age of our, uh, and we don't call them patients on our side, we call them members or participants because um, we, we mm. make the assumption that these are healthy individuals who want to get, um, you know, optimize their wellness so, and, and avoid disease, right? So um, the gaps that our members are telling us about are in primary care. Um, many of them have moved several times over the course of their life, lifetime, and they tend to find primary care for their kids, but then as adults, they, you know, they're, they're lapsing on having a PCP. So they're relying on other sources, telemedicine, et cetera, to address those sort of primary care needs. Um, Participation in wellness programs or executive health programs is low um, when you look at company-sponsored uh, initiatives. So um, any HR professional will tell you that even the really high-end executive physicals, the participation rate is only about 35% um, across the population. That's even the ones that don't have a copay. So we're seeing low participation. And we attribute that to a couple of things. Um, one is the amount of time that a PCP can spend proactively working on preventative health with a participant is, is very limited. It's about 20 minutes a year. Um, so, and that, that is just broad, broadly. Um, secondly, 
uh, a lot of the recommendations that are ma being made are not taking into account the holistic picture of the individual. So that includes their genetics, their gut health, their, uh, their, their past history, their diet, their exercise, their sleep. Um, and so individuals that are participating in our program really love the fact that we can tailor our intervention um, based on a very rich, dense, dynamic data set. So they like that. Um, and then I think thirdly, you know, we, as a society and as a, as a healthcare system, we have essentially perverse incentives when it comes to reimbursement. And that's because, you know, much of it is about billable codes. It's about disease as opposed to keeping health, people healthy. There's, there's, not a, there's not a lot of money in preventative health, right? And if you look at wellness as a, as a venture capital category, it's been very tattered. And so, you know, we're slowly, slowly starting to see this shift from reactive sick care into a sort of more proactive, preventative, personalized, participatory approach to health. Um, and I'm so excited that the biopharmaceutical community is leaning into that, in particular um, that I know of in, in Novartis and J&J, &J, their, their CEOs, their C-suite are very um, open about funding initiatives around preventative health. Uh, yesterday I was attending the presentation um, by Johnson & Johnson, or Janssen's executive, around the world without disease, which is all about disease interception. And so, you know, I think as a, as a healthcare community, um, you know, we need to be traveling further up the food chain um, and really helping intercept disease before it manifests in suffering. Yes, I quite agree. And I have to admit, I don't have a PCP. <laughs> and I'm thinking about um, um, getting into a program like the one that um, Amir just described to us. Okay. So um, we're going to talk now about two... Uh, there are lots of initiatives out there. Um, and we're going to talk about two very successful initiatives now. And first of all, um, a FASIA developed... Um, an amazing program. It's an award-winning program. She might not tell you this, but she got an innovation award from Lily. Not only that, this program was so successful in rheumatology that all of the other uh, disease categories within Lily are thinking of um, copying it. And it also got um, an award from uh, medical marketing and, <coughs> and uh, media this year. So. Um, it's, it's a fantastic program that was developed um, at Lilly, and it's one that um, uh, Fasia uh, spearheaded. So tell us about it, um, Fasia, and tell us what the goals were and why it was so successful. Sure, sure. So the program Conversations in Motion was developed uh, with rheumatologists, so it was in the rheumatology field, but I would argue that it actually applies pretty much across uh, any therapeutic area. And it's uh, basically a program that is designed to teach healthcare professionals effective communication techniques. And given the time constraints that they have, we had to be very careful in what the criteria we set out to develop this program was. And the goal really of the program is to, to bridge some of that disconnect I talked about earlier, the discordance that, that exists between physicians and patients. So, we did a, I think the main reasons, Lynn, why it's been quite successful is it addresses a true gap. We identified uh, a need through a very thorough needs assessment, consultations with hundreds of rheumatologists across the globe. And, you know, they really shared how, what, that there is, in fact, still a lack of training and education in communication. 
How do you build empathy and trust? How do you do all of that within, you know, within four minutes or 10 minutes or 12 minutes? So one of the things they shared is it would be wonderful to have such a program, but in order for it to be successful, here's what you're gonna need to do. So the ground rules they set were, uh, were high, uh, or stringent, I should say, and, but they were good to have at the outset. And because we were able to meet some of those, I believe that's why the program has been successful. So what did they tell us? They said in order for a, a you know, program that focuses on communication techniques to be successful, you need to make sure that all of these techniques are grounded in science. They're based on scientific evidence. Okay, they need to be applicable to my world, to my clinical practice. They need to be easy to apply. So meaning not only that it's practical in that I can apply it myself, but I can teach it as a rheumatologist to other rheumatologists. Because to your point, the credibility only comes in when it's a peer-to-peer -peer program. And I have to tell you, this program is non-promotional completely. It does not talk about any drugs whatsoever. It's simply focused on communication. Another of the ground rules, of course, was that it did need to improve patient-physician satisfaction because, as you know from studies, that has been shown to improve outcomes overall. And most importantly, it needed to not take more time than you know, what they have in their allotted visit. In fact, if possible, please develop a program that actually helps us save time. So we had our marching orders, and in order to do this, we actually collaborated not only with the rheumatologist, but patient advocacy, we collaborated with uh, communication science experts, psychologists, and sociolinguists to make sure that the framework was such that it met all of these criteria. At the end of the day, the program basically focuses on communication techniques that address the topics you see in the slide. Shared decision making, building empathy and trust, practice efficiency, and adherence. And it really has a very simple framework. It explains the technique, why it's important, and how do I apply it. That's basically it. It doesn't bog you down in the theory. While the theory is important, if it's based on the science, they felt that give them the minimum that they need to know and let's move on with how do I do it in daily practice. And the format of the program originally, the version 1.0 I'll call it, was a series of uh, PowerPoint modules, very interactive, meant to be in small group discussion-based forums. The second iteration is now uh, interactive videos because it has become now mandatory uh, in many hospitals and clinics for all of the staff. And to make that practical, um, you know, it's not always practical to do everything face-to-face, -face, so we've created the videos. And those have been wildly successful. In fact, in two, of, uh, two European hospitals, they have main, made it mandatory for all fellows to complete all of the videos and training prior to writing their, their exams. Um, many of the countries across the globe are now partnering with advocacy societies to come up with a complementary program specifically for patients. And um, the results so far, they are starting to also measure impact, so I think I'll have more data in a year's time. But what we're hearing is, is very good in terms of how it is improving not only satisfaction, but long-term outcomes for patients and physicians as well. Because it's saving them time, I think overall they're finding that that's leading to much better uh, discussions and they're making the most of the time that they have. Yeah, so now you know why she got an award for this program. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Stuart, so um, what aspects of your work at Healthcare Success 
um, contribute most to improved care, would you say? So what's fun about, um, I got into marketing actually on a lark. I thought I was going to be an engineer. I love science and math, but I took a marketing class and I just loved, and I still to this day love influencing the human behavior. I don't know what it is. It's just something that's fun to me. So the, our uh, entire company was built around generating action, getting patients to take action, getting doctors to take action. And so a couple of just anecdotes that Lynn and I have been discussing recently. Uh, one is uh, we just launched a new program for a biopharma in San Diego, which there, our task is we have to find patients from uh, that have stage three or stage four inoperable solid tumors. They have to be, you know, with this criteria and this criteria in Southern State California for orthotopic testing on mice. So essentially, if you don't know about this, they can, uh, most genetic testing with mice, they actually take the tumor out of a human being and put it into a mouse subdermally. With orthotopic, they actually take it. If you have liver cancer, they put it into the liver. So this is a complicated concept. And the idea here, the benefit of that is, is not for science, it's for the patient because if they take that same tumor, put it into five mice, they can tell which chemotherapy responds, uh, which, um, or which drug, it could be a, um, uh, other forms of drugs besides chemotherapy. But at any rate, whatever the mice responds to, whichever one responds best, it's much likelier to work better than the human. So you can imagine that's, you, not only if you're short on time anyway, to narrow it down quickly to the most effective drug, not to mention the human unnecessary human suffering on a drug that is less likely to work, it's pretty amazing, right? That's an yeah. exciting thing. So what's fun about my job is already within days of launching, we have people calling, real live actual patients that are calling this little needle on a haystack. So that to me is very fulfilling. And then another anecdote of the kinds of, so, and, the, and maybe the reason why that's relevant to this is, uh, I was talking to Lynn about the creative approach. We designed that program so that the website starts with the most basic, advanced um, testing, allows your doctor to work with your doctor to get the best possible drug treatment or most likely to be successful drug treatment. And then it breaks it down layer by layer because some people want to know everything, some people just want to know the opening. Yeah. So it's particularly fulfilling. And then just another anecdote about our world, um, we worked with a um, completely different, much easier uh, situation. A primary care provider asked us, they were so excited when we met them to get a new patient a day. Um, uh, and now we get them 20 patients a day. So by raising their new patient count, by getting, they've grown obviously, helps them scale. We were talking about earlier, not, it's not just that they're more successful economically, but because they can scale, they can provide better care. And one day driving around, the, he was telling me, look Stuart, you guys helped us make a more healthy community. So we're able to reach patients in the way terms they can understand. So I would argue this is where, when we talk about patient experience, to me there's two rings, right? There's patient experience, and there's marketing, but there's an intersect where they really work together well, and that's why it's a passion for me. Yeah, that's terrific. Actually, in the website that Stuart's talking about is really, really great. It does exactly what he said. So, you know, the, to your point, um, uh, Fasir, that some patients just want to know um, the bottom line, and some people want to know the detail, and it's, and it's set up so fantastically. So congrats, yeah. Stuart, that's Th really good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right, so um, we're going to move on to um, accelerating um, widespread adoption of patient-centric care. And um, the first question I'm going to ask to um, uh, Sven, so you saw that the program that, that they've developed at Northwell Health is highly successful. So my questions to, um, to uh, Sven is, um, what are the reasons for the success and 
And what are the obstacles in our healthcare system that prevent um, other organizations from doing exactly the same thing? Because we know that they don't. Um. Yeah, so um, starting with the, the, the reasons for the success, and I, I, I don't want to call the, the success, raise the flag yet that we have succeeded. I think we're on a journey, and um, uh, everybody's on a different part of the, part of the journey, and um, even when you're successful, there's still ways to, to, to improve that. But I think the, the number one um, uh, influencer there is the leadership buy-in, the leadership um, commitment to uh, a program like that. And that's across the organization. I think that starts with our CEO, um, who um, I have the fortune to report to. So he said he makes a patient experience very important at the, at the system level that trickles down to the physician leaders, um, to our chief medical officer, who um, hand-selected the faculty, the 36 physicians that are actually running running the program. Many of them are physician leaders. Uh, they're really busy medical directors of, uh, of hospitals or service line chairs, actually. Um, and, uh, for example, the, the the, the physician lead for the whole program, Dr. Kalman, she is now the executive director, the CEO of Lenox Hill Hospital in, in, in Manhattan. Um, she still practices medicine, um, she's a cardiologist, and she still um, teaches this course um, one, once, um, once every six weeks or so, uh, which just uh, is a, a tremendous commitment, which is also often the barrier. I mean, it took me two years to get it off the ground and to get the organizational buy-in, but that was a good thing because that way we were able to socialize it and we were able to to make it uh, to make it right and uh, to the, the other point is to get the physicians involved in uh, designing it and that's something I learned a long time ago because I don't come from healthcare I come from the hospitality industry and uh, the previous CEO of my previous organization Henry Ford Health System in Michigan gave me that that advice early on she said when you work with physicians it's, there are three things you have to keep in mind uh, one is you have to respect them um, for everything they've accomplished and, and the work they do. Two is you have to work with them and uh, collaborate with them, and that's what we've done here. And three is you have to love them. You have to give them a hug every once in a while. Um, and uh, that's something I, I, I keep in mind um, all the time. And then another um, reason why I believe it's successful is because it goes to the what's in it for me for the doctors. Um, and what's in it for them is it connects them to why they went into medicine in the first place. And uh, um, there's many anecdotes. And uh, Dr. Kalman, who I just mentioned, has one where she has a patient that she's seen for years and feels like she has, has a very good relationship uh, with, with him. And one day, because of what she learned in the class and teaching the class, she said uh, to him, what else? She never asked that question before, and he broke down crying, and he was talking about that his wife has cancer, and uh, she would never would have gotten to that if she didn't ask that question, and um, that added time to her, to her uh, um, schedule that day, but it was very, very meaningful, and uh, she said to him, why didn't you tell me that before? And, it, and the answer was because you didn't ask. 
And um, that's uh, very powerful. And every single physician has one of those moments and one of those aha moments. And that's why they believe in it. And, and now they come together on a monthly basis, like a lunch and learn type of um, situation. And it's called the, the uh, Communities in Learning Practice. And then they talk about patients and they talk about how they, how they apply the tools and it makes them uh, feel more connected to, to their mission, to the work they do. Mm-hmm. So I can see Eamon here is saying, are you saying there's a question? Is that what, is that why you're showing me the? Uh, no. Yeah, I'm just wanting to check with you whether you're comfortable taking questions from the floor. Yes, we are. Um, uh, okay, uh, we do have um, a couple of other things. Hearing from me and from Stuart, that we want to tell everybody. Okay, so, the short version. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's have have the short version from them, and then um, then let's take some questions. But there will and actually, be time. Thank we have a final question that actually is really interesting too. So. So um, I want to ask me, so the work that Mia is doing is really leading edge, um, um, doing genetic testing and coaching, and, um, uh, and it's at the leading edge of personalized care. So, and as you know, we discussed that the human touch here is really important. So um, what do we need to do to make this mainstream? So I'm going to ask you to speak quickly because we're, of course, um, I knew this would happen because they all talk a lot. <laughs> okay. Of course. So, so in order to make this mainstream, so, you know, I think an, a, a program like Aravel's that is very high touch, um, provides a lot of data, but has relationship-based accountability built in with a human coach um, where the participant or patient um, can communicate with their coach via a secure app or, face, or, or over the phone as much as they want, right, I think is really important for behavior change. Clearly, that's not possible to do in a PCP or a hospital setting, right? Um, and so I think in order to make things mainstream, we need to have uh, better collaborative models where the health system and new uh, technology-based approaches work together um, as part of a continuum, um, including on things like uh, behavior change, which is so critical to managing uh, lifestyle-related diseases, which is, you know, frankly affecting a, a very large percentage of our population. Um, the second thing that is needed is um, to change the health economics uh, associated with preventative care. Um, I know of a, a particularly large study that's being conducted by Providence St. Joseph's. They've got a thousand of their caregivers in a preventative health program and they're tracking over a three-year three period to see whether investing in personalized participatory proactive care can induce, indeed reduce healthcare claims. Um, and so that's two years into that study and, and the results are looking really, really good. Um, so I think between those two things, um, collaboration and partnerships, um, a, a change in economics, um, we, we should see uh, a gradual uptick towards mainstream. Good. So I was going to ask Stuart, um, but he won't mind if I don't ask him probably. <laughs> I was going to ask him, because um, his team are expert at digital communication, so how could we scale programs effectively? I, have, but, I can give it like 30 seconds. Okay. Well, it's just interesting because that's kind of the holy grail is how do we use technology to scale? And that's been a topic in some of the other breakout sessions I've heard. And, um, for example, Mia today was talking about, and it's very difficult, right? There's, it's more complicated than just an app, but Mia was talking about, as we sat down this morning, 
about a new app that's for behavioral care, that's cognitive behavioral therapy that actually has been very effective, right? So that's exciting. And I just, from my standpoint, just the digital marketing part in my 10 seconds left is, I love the fact that we can test, track, and adjust. So when we're doing marketing with um, digital, stuff that used to take years to get, if you're trying to do traditional marketing, to, you know, you run a TV ad and did it work or not, it's you know six months a year, in days you can make changes. So it's just a really exciting time on the marketing side, on the technology side. It's not, it can be, sometimes it has to be great big funding, sometimes it can be very guerrilla and at least get the direction very quickly. How's that? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have a question. You sit, sit. We do, yes. I think this has been a very focused and yet comprehensive panel discussion and also exceptionally well prepared. So my compliments to all of you for putting in the effort to get there. Um, but I'm sure that the conversation has prompted questions from members of the floor. And I have got one to start with, and this is aimed for Sven. Um, the program that you described is reaching a thousand participants, and they're all physicians or healthcare practitioners. Correct. Yeah. Um, but the conversation around which this is based is two-way. It's a patient healthcare professional conversation. To what extent were patients themselves involved in the design or even the delivery of the program that you've got? So we have um, patient partnership councils, um, 18 across the, the health system. Um, they were not actually sitting at the table, but as we rolled it out or before we rolled it out, we were able to get their, um, their input into that, uh, into that as well. But we do a lot of uh, work, work with our patient community. And, and the second question that I got from me before we come to the questions from the floor is, is it feels as though there are a lot of um, well-intentioned but relatively small initiatives aimed at improving the interaction between healthcare professionals and patients. Is it time that we as an industry stood yes. up and actually tried to do something yes. across the industry to, to broaden the reach of the programs that we're doing because we're touching tiny minorities of physicians and patients. Actually, that is our was our last question. I was going to give them all a minute to tell us. <laughs> 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 do you want to do you want to go to that? Yeah. Um, could you? Um, Let's go to that. Okay. So actually, um, what um, when we were talking with um, Afasia, she said the one thing that always keeps recurring to her mind is how can we break down the barriers between companies and institutions and collaborate for the overall benefit of our patients? And I have to tell you that if anybody in the audience would like to work with us, we would be absolutely delighted to um, you know to spearhead a program. Um, like that, that would involve multiple pharma companies. I've worked with programs, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I've worked with companies, um, uh, for example, with the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship that was sponsored by every single um, um, a company that provided oncology products. And it is definitely possible for pharma to come together um, and also for advocacy groups to come together and do these wonderful programs. So if you would like to, so, so anyway. Um, uh, what I asked the panel to do is to give us one, uh, I, an idea of one, uh, that they have, a, they have a minute each to give us one or two ideas on how to break down these barriers um, and achieve this. So, uh, uh, Sven. Um, well, I think this, this panel is a great example of that, that uh, there's a lot of commonality in, uh, from, from different sectors uh, that, we're, that we're trying to, to affect here. And I think opening the channels of communication and, uh, and working together. And um, I believe in storytelling, and uh, that's something we do as an, as an organization also, and the, 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 the stories that back up the data and that brings us back to the mission mm, of why we do this. And if we focus on that, then we, we can break down the barriers. Right, yeah. Okay, Mia? I keep going back to 
the fact that some of the greatest unmet medical need in our community um, is related to you know, people, particularly women of color. Um, it's a very understudied population. Yeah. And so, yet suffering from a tremendous amount of chronic disease. And um, what I would love to see is a, a, a biopharmaceutical initiative combined with um, some of the new technology approaches, like the ones that we're doing, um, to come together and really make an investment in um, serving patients that are, are not being taken care of today. Um, you know, the Aravel program is great. Like, we have tremendous mm -hmm. clinical outcomes, but the reality is 90% um, of our participants are European ancestry. And so, you know, we are not able to then really do some deep phenotyping and genotyping and really study chronic disease in, in, um, in diverse populations because of that. And so, you know, we, we, would, we would love to come together and, and study a chronic disease like a NASH or obesity or diabetes or um, cardiovascular disease together with a biopharmaceutical company, but yeah. very much focused on um, on underserved, understudied populations. Yeah, I just want to say one thing. Actually, I was talking with someone from BMS a little while ago, and he um, he gave me a hard time because he said every ad board should include um, people from underserved areas because they have such a different um, perspective um, on on healthcare. Okay. So, um, what I I think this is a start actually doing cross collaboration with different perspectives. I think that's really important. I feel like. Perhaps uh, hospitals may have a couple years head start, although they're still brand new at this as well. So I think it's a really new idea. I think that also having um, leveraging technology again is so powerful. So I'll give you an example, not an app, but if you, anybody hasn't seen the Cleveland Clinic's uh, patient empathy video, it's amazing. I play it during my seminars. We do seminars and people get to tears just watching, looking from the patient's point of view. So yeah, the clip. So the point is that's a video. It's been downloaded many millions of times. Hopefully, it's going to be downloaded a hundred more times after this meeting. <laughs> but um, it's very, it's fantastic. So if we think through, and then um, Pastia, I think, has a great point too. When we were talking, I'll let her speak to herself. Of you know, no one company can bear this burden. You know, how to, like somebody yesterday from Johnson Johnson said the same thing. We want to help, but mm -hmm. we can't bear this burden alone. But if we think it through strategically and figure out, okay. We can reach, you know, millions of healthcare providers, and this is not just other hospitals. These are people, you know, physical therapists in Edmonton or someplace are watching these. So it, I just think it's very powerful if we plan it well and work together. Let's okay, Fasia. Yes. So short words, version. Well, you know, um, it's interesting, right? Patients. One thing that stands out to me is a patient, and we have the privilege in pharma of, of listening to patients all the time uh, through focus groups and, and whatnot. And I remember in rheumatology, this patient said to us, you know, she'd, she'd gotten diagnosed after something like eight years, actually. And she said, everywhere I went, you know, I just felt like nobody really listened to me. And she said, finally, I decided to stand up for myself. And the next physician I saw, I said, you know what? I am not a joint. So look at me as the whole patient. And William Osler, you know, who is a, um, has been a pioneer in the field of medicine, and I'm sure you all know this quote, said the good doctor, you know, treats the, pa treats the disease, but the great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And I think to get there, we need to focus on that common goal. Break down some of the barriers or assumptions that we have, bring together multi stakeholders together. Mm. Because you see, there's a lot going on, right? And just here, you know, while it's energizing, I kind of get the sense like, oh my goodness, there's so much going on, I have no idea about all the things that are going on. <laughs> so 
isn't it better maybe to put our heads together and see where we can collaborate, yeah. how we can you know, break down some of these barriers and focus on what is the common goal? We may not have the answers, but I'm very confident, given this, uh, the smart people on this panel and, and others that we have uh, within these different stakeholder groups, we can actually get there if we work on it together. Yeah, so I'm really serious that we would love anyone here who wants to collaborate with us. So this is my email address. Please email me or come and give me your business card and we'll be in touch. And we're also happy to share the podcasts. Um, and Eamon... Lynn, in the interest of time, I'd yes, like to just one question from the yes. floor. And I'd like to give that question to a member of the patient panel. Yes. So if, if, if the question could be asked and addressed by just one member of please. your panel, please. Hmm. Hi, um, my name is Michael Middleman. Appreciate the talk. I missed part of it, but I, I did want to know since you're all from different industries, um, a lot of what's talked about is listening to the patient, treating the patient holistically, um, patient family advisory councils, things of these sorts. Um, if you're really living in sort of one area, right, rheumatology, if you're living in recruitment of patients, if you're living in maybe the, the hospital system, right, Northwell being more integrated. Um, how can you, how do you value the success of a partnership with patients? Um, and how do you expect to collaborate with patients and family members um, when all everybody really wants is free time from us? So I guess that would be my biggest question and ch challenge to all of you, you can think about it, but one of you, if you could answer it. Um, collaborating, right? Let's talk about ways to collaborate um, you all have jobs to be here. We don't, so I guess how can we collaborate where we value people, right, holistically? That's a question. Um, you know, actually, I just want to say that I would, um, personally, I hope you have some time just to talk with me because I'd like to hear your answer to that question too, um, truthfully, because that's something that we kind of grapple with um, in, our, in our industry. Um, so, I, I, do you want to, um, anyone want to pick up that question? <laughs> Everybody's looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> the closest to it. Um, well, it's, you know, that, it, it's troublesome that um, there are these, there are these uh, perceptions, and I think that, um, you know, our goal as an organization is also, and it talks a lot about what, what's been discussed also, and what, what, what you discussed, Mia, is like the, the look at holistically, look at not just at, as a patient holistically, but look at the community holistically, and look at the social determinants of health, and uh, making sure that we that we serve um, everybody in uh, w within that, and that, um, for example, through. Uh, behavioral health through that nobody uh, wants to invest in um, through um, food insecurities all these things that affect the health of, of individuals and then um, how can we serve more people and um, how can we maximize that maximize that impact um, in terms of um, um, health outcomes and to grow healthier healthier communities is really what, what, what we're focused on and partnering with the patients on that.